Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And welcome to Talking Biotech. Um, once again, we're here. This is episode 22. And we're going to reiterate a theme that we started last week. And that is, what is the role of cassava? Um, and uh, actually, what is the role of science in cassava? And we talked last week with a couple of very, um, very good interviews regarding some of the newer technologies that are happening in terms of identifying the pests that vector disease and also by understanding some ways in which biofortification is helping to develop a better crop. Today I'd really like to do what I should have done first, and that is tell the beginning of the story before the end of the story, but that's okay. Um, We sometimes do do things in funny ways and push the envelope, and that backfires occasionally. But this is a good idea. I think we'll talk today first um, with uh, Professor Barbara Shaw from Washington University in St. Louis. And she talks about the natural history of cassava and its domestication. And a very fascinating story that really gives great context to the other interviews. And in the second half, we'll talk to um, Dr. Nigel Taylor from the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center in St. Louis. So two St. Louis-based interviews today. And he'll tell us about the innovations mostly in virus resistance that have led to new cassava varieties that show great promise for the African continent. So cassava, cup two, here on Talking Biotech. And so last week in Talking Biotech, we had lots of discussion about innovations that could be helping cassava growers, in mostly in Africa. But we didn't discuss its natural history or any of its background, domestication, etc. So today we're very fortunate to be able to speak to Professor Barbara Shaw. She's the Dean of Faculty of the Arts and Sciences, the um, Mary Del Chilton Distinguished Professor from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, welcome to Talking Biotech, Dr. Shaw. Hi, thank you. So some of the questions that we had really were to go back to the beginning. And so what is a cassava? What is it? And what are the parts of the plant that people eat? Um, 
certainly. So cassava is um, a plant in the plant family uh, Euphorbiaceae, which is the same family as poinsettias, um, although it doesn't look at all like a poinsettia. It is um, a South American plant, um, and it's a member of the genus Maniot, and that genus has about 98 different species, um, and that's actually pretty important for domestication. So even though we, when we think about cassava, we very often think about Africa, in fact, it uh, was domesticated in South America. Um, and in particular, one of the questions until, oh, maybe about 15 years ago is, what was the wild ancestor of cassava? Um, and so cassava, when you look at it, it is a plant that has actually a structure kind of like a poinsettia, big, long, cane-like stems. It's, um, it's an herbaceous thing. It's not woody like a shrub or a tree. And it has leaves that um, have five lobes to them. Some people actually think it looks a little bit like marijuana, but it really doesn't if you look closely. And it has some tiny green flowers. Uh, the, the whole plant can sometimes be as tall as five or six feet. Sometimes it's only a couple of feet tall, depending on what the environment is like. And what people eat is the underground um, root. Um, it's not a tuber like a potato. It's really just a swollen root. It's packed with starch, um, a couple of different kinds of starch, and that's what, what people have harvested and that's what they eat. It's a remarkable plant. Um, it is adapted to the poor soils of, uh, soils of South America. It does well in bad soils. It does well with um, variable water regimes, and it has very huge yields, yields which is why it's so um, important for Africa because it is such a productive plant. Um, the center of origin is... Um, is in South America. It's in a part of Brazil called the Cerrado, and this is kind of a shrubby area. And it's specifically the wild ancestor um, is uh, it's a plant called Maniot flabellifolia, and it grows in something called a gallery forest. And the gallery forest is where tributaries go um, go down from the Cerrado and into the rainforest, and then ultimately into the Amazon. So little fingers of tropical rainforest um, follow these rivers up into the Cerrado, and that's where the wild ancestor is. And so was that the area where it was domesticated by indigenous people that realized its food value? Um, that's what we think. Um, we think that that is the area of domestication, and it actually makes a lot of sense because in that area is actually a center of domestication. So not only do we think cassava was uh, domesticated there, but also um, peanuts and uh, some some kinds of peppers. So uh, that was an area where the indigenous people began to use plants and then ultimately cultivate them and change them so that they became more amenable for human um, use. And was this in one of Vavilov's areas of domestication? Um, yeah, I, I think it, it was. Um, although uh, this is one of those secondary areas where people don't don't think quite that much as as being important, but of course, if you were living um, in um, what was was to become Brazil, this was a really important crop, um, and it still is very important today in in that region. And so, what are the main features that early domesticators, early indigenous people, were likely selecting? What were the major? Uh, was it for that heavy food route? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It was certainly for the for the root, but it's actually more complicated than that. Because when you look at these gallery forests, 
it's just a bunch of green, many, many different kinds of plants. And so you wonder, how do those people know to dig up and find the roots of this? Um, some people suggest that maybe animals were eating the roots, and so the, the human um, population was able to watch the animals. Um, but one of the other things that happens, and this is an area where there'll be fires, and after a fire, one of the first things to sprout after the fire is uh, the wild ancestor of cassava. So this would have been a plant that most of the time is just one of probably 500 green species of plants. But after a fire, it's very, very visible. Okay, so what, what were some of the unusual traits about cassava that folks uh, had to deal with during domestication? Well, the interesting thing about um, maniot and a number of, of, of the species of maniot is that they produce cyanide in the root. Um, and as you can imagine, cyanide, um, not only is it not tasty, it's very, very bitter, but it, in high concentrations, of course, it causes um, chronic cyanide poisoning, and if it's in really high concentration, it'll cause death. So one of the mysteries that we've wondered about a lot is how were early humans able to understand not only that the root had high food value and, and it was um, a good source of food, but that you had to get rid of the cyanide. And w no, no one really knows how that first happened. Um, very often when you'll see pictures, um, maybe a National Geographic special, and you'll see people, um, indigenous people now in the Amazon, they're pounding this white meal. What they're doing is they're pounding the root of the cassava and breaking up the cells and letting the cyanide release. So what we think is perhaps very, and you can also let it um, uh, basically let bacteria grow on the root, and that will release the cyanide. So we think it could be times when people were very, very hungry, um, and then they're willing to try something that might taste bad, um, and, then, um, and then try it repeatedly, um, and ultimately figure out how to get rid of the cyanide. But it's, it's a very interesting uh, trait of cassava, and many of the varieties that are cultivated today, in fact, still have cyanide in them, and they do have to be processed. And if they're not processed, then you can get a, a disease that's common um, in part, some parts of Africa, uh, chronic cyanide poisoning, and that's from insufficient processing of the cassava. Yeah, the cyanide's really interesting. Very, uh, very odd trait. It, it is. Well, what, the, the reason that the plants produce cyanide, um, the... the Certainly the feeling is that they produce it as a natural defense compound. You know, plants are just amazing biochemists. Um, animals can get up and run away when there's something that wants to chomp on them, but a plant can't do that. So they develop all of these chemical defenses against um, bacteria and, and, and fungal, uh, you know, all kinds of pathogens and herbivores, things that actually chew on them. And it's thought that in a number of cases, when you have high cyanide, that's bitter and something like a, a beetle larvae is going to not chew on, on, on a cassava root. So that, that's one of the, 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 the thoughts about cyanide production, and, the defense mechanism. And interesting that the plant root itself doesn't get the same inhibition from the cyanide. The plant, you know, has ways of either, does the plant just vacularize it or? Uh, exactly. It's, they, they sequester, in order to get cyanide, you have to put two things together. Um, and that's done when the root is broken. That's really interesting because it ties in with almost that Michael Pollan um, botany of desire idea that maybe the plants selected us and that uh, the humans that figured out the way to properly prepare them were the ones who survived to continue those traditions. 
I, th- I think there's something to that. <laughs> well, so where do we find uh, the wild? So the wild relatives today are they really just in that same area? So the um, the the all of the 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 wild ancestor is still in that region um, of of uh, Brazil, and um, in fact, that's where one of my uh, former graduate students studied at Dr. Ken Olson. Um, and he was able to do field work and, and look at the wild ancestor, do collections, and then show that genetically it was very similar to our domesticated cassava. What is uh, cassava used for in those areas of its domestication? Well, that, that's a really interesting question um, with a very interesting answer. Um, if you go to Africa or if you go to large cassava fields in South America or in Asia, the cassava that's produced there is, uh, is big roots with, packed with white starch. So it's white, uh, the white roots. And it's used as a source of starch. Um, one of my colleagues from, uh, Brazil, Luis Cavallo, went to the area of domestication after, um, uh, after it was identified and asked the indigenous people there, how do you use cassava? And he got a very interesting answer. Um, it turns out that in this area of domestication, the indigenous people use it not only as a source of starch to make farinha or a meal um, of some sort to make uh, flour for a pancake. They use um, there's a variety that's very, very sweet, and they use it for dessert. There's a variety that they pickle. There's a variety that they make a fermented um, dish of. So in these areas, there's a variety that they eat the leaves from. Um, they boil them for some 24 hours and then eat this, this syrup. And so what you see in this area of domestication where plants have been associated, where this species has been associated with humans for a long time, it's not just one use, but there's been multiple uses developed um, for cassava. And the indigenous people have selected uh, various kinds of mutations in um, the carbohydrate biochemistry to give you different kinds of, of varieties. And moreover, um, some of those varieties um, have are beginning to sequester um, such things as beta carotene, which is important um, for preventing vitamin A deficiency. Uh, some of them sequester leucopene and some of these other antioxidants. So it's a very, very rich diversity of different biochemical types in this area of domestication. And as soon as you get into the commercial cassava, um, and that the kind of cassava varieties that have been exported, all of that drops out, and you mainly get just it used as a starch. So it's it's a fascinating story about the the wisdom, if you will, uh, and 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 the great selection that has been done by the indigenous people. Now, when I when you mentioned earlier that a lot of the times we think about cassava, we think of the African continent, and so how did it move from South America to Africa? Well, it's it's a it's a very sad story. Um, it was moved as part of the slave trade, um, as as a source of food, and so that was taken over to Africa by the Portuguese as part of the slave trade. And they would grow cassava, and it was used um, as, as a food source. And then slowly, uh, cassava spread from West Africa to East Africa, and of course became very very important for um, as as a food source and as part of just if you will the the, the native. Uh, culture in many ways, because a lot of culture has developed around uh, the processing of cassava in various villages. And maybe could you tell us a little bit more about that process? So what, what is, how is it grown in those areas and what are the, are they big plantations or are they small farms or can a smallholder farm uh, be sustained on their cassava crop? Yeah, they, um, 
the cassava crops very often are relatively smallholder farms, although there's a lot of commercial. There's what, one of the the challenges for cassava is it's a crop that's hard to monetize, um, in part because uh, there's a lot of starch. Um, lots of things produce starch, so the markets are pretty saturated many times for starch, um, and it's not an expensive commodity. Uh, and at the same time, cassava, once you harvest it, it, can, it uh, begins to go through something called post-harvest deterioration. We'd call it rots easy. Um, it just is, it's susceptible to bacterial infection. So um, it, it, in, in many cases, the, it's grown not as in big commercial fields, but again, that's changing, but in small, uh, small farms. And it is used to feed the local family. Um, and in, in many of the villages, it's very interesting. Um, there are different varieties of cassava. Some are called sweet, and they don't require much processing or any at all. But in many cases, um, some anthropologists have discovered that the women of a village who process the plant prefer to use the bitter cassava and process it. And it turns out because they all sit around and they're, they're, they process the cassava together, it's a very important cultural and social time for, for the women of, of, of a village. And have you ever tasted, you know, must have tasted cassava at some point in its more natural or cultural um, presentations, right? Not just like in, so here in, in North America, we see this as like tapioca, tapioca starch. Is that from cassava? Right, exactly. Most people know it now through bubble tea. Okay, so so in, in the African continent, how would you prepare it typically if you were making a meal with cassava? Um, I've seen it prepared sort of a starch like you would do rice or potatoes. Um, and they, it's kind of a meal-like thing, and then it is, is um, just you know, like a white lumpy thing. And very often it's served with a sauce on top, a meat sauce. Um, in other cases, it'll be a flat pancake. I've seen it prepared like that as well. So it, it's basically a flour. Okay, and then when, you're, when we think about going forward, what are some of the biggest challenges that the farmers, I guess, in the, in the indigenous areas where it was grown near the center of origin, but also on the African continent, what are some of the biggest cassava, uh, cassava challenges? Well, I think first is disease, and, and, and I know you, you, you've talked about that. Um, there are um, a series of introduced viruses to Africa that just simply decimate the crop. Uh, we had a cassava meeting in Uganda, and in one of the um, provinces of Uganda, there was an outbreak of this uh, African cassava mosaic virus, and the yield dropped by about 70%. But when you're dealing with populations that don't have a lot of food security, that is really very, very challenging. So so I think disease is very, very um, significant. I think another challenge for cassava is it's just starch most of the time. And it's not good nutrition. If you eat only uh, cassava, you're going to have um, protein deficiency diseases, um, micronutrient. Um, you won't have enough micronutrients. So I think that's a challenge for cassava. Um, making it a commercial crop, the challenge is to deal with the post-harvest deterioration um, and finding uses for it where a farmer can sell some of it and actually bring money into a farm. Uh, that's really important in terms of uh, buying medicines and books and things like that. And so there's so a number of challenges. The modern uh, improvement of cassava is mostly, it appears to be, being done by breeders in different areas all over the world. And what are some of the major improvements they're trying to make? And are they going back to those uh, original natural populations? Or what are some of the strategies? So there's, there's, the interesting thing about uh, cassava breeding now and, and work on cassava is it uses multiple strategies. 
all the way from going back to the original land races in those those areas um, and grabbing some of those land races that, for example, sequester um, beta carotene so that you'll have uh, beta carotene for vitamin A. So that's been used in some of the breeding programs. Um, there's varieties that have low cyanide. Those can be um, be bred into it. There's a couple of cases where um, they've tried to deal with uh, the post-harvest deterioration, the rotting of the plant, of the tuber, the, the, the I'm sorry, the root, that um, they've bred with some of the other wild ancestors that are wild uh, relatives that are in uh, Brazil. And then there's efforts to just change the uh, the yield, to increase the yield of the plant, um, to breed in disease resistance. That's been done both traditionally and also with genetic modification. So there's, there's a number of different strategies and a number of different things that are being selected for. And we, we're talking to some of the folks about um, the genetic engineering end of cassava, and we've spoken to, uh, to people about the new vitamin B6 addition uh, that was recently shown, at least as proof of concept. And we're talking a little bit about the virus uh, resistance. But what do you think are some of the other opportunities that would be really welcome uh, in that crop that maybe can't be addressed by breeding alone? Well, I think um, there, there's work done at um, the Danforth Plant Science Center here in St. Louis, and they're trying to develop crop, uh, cassava as a complete food source. So what they're trying, and, and some of this is using traditional breeding, some of it is using um, an interspecies hybridization. Um, they're trying to um, add protein to the root. They're trying to add um, all of the, a, a number of different vitamins, uh, nutrients such as zinc and iron. Um, and so a lot of that has to be, and, and disease resistance. So, so that requires a whole portfolio, a whole toolbox of techniques in order to do, all the way from um, genetically, genetic modification through just traditional plant breeding. Well, that was a really great lesson in some of the basics of cassava, and I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Um, that's uh, Dr. Barbara Shaw. She's the Dean for the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Mary Del Chilton Distinguished Professor, who is a wonderful, uh, famous scientist who had a lot of great things to do in biotechnology. That's at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that discusses how the newest technologies in traditional breeding and genetic engineering conspire to improve medical treatments as well as animal and plant products. The idea is to use our best tools to feed the needy and help the farmer and do so with respect to our planet. The Talking Biotech Podcast is financed and produced 100% by Dr. Kevin Folta and is separate from his popular outreach workshops. If you'd like to help, please write a review on iTunes or tell a friend to listen in. With every episode, our numbers grow and your listenership is truly appreciated as moving innovation to application requires communication. Today on Talking Biotech on really part two of this particular episode of Cassava is uh, Dr. Nigel Taylor. Dr. Nigel Taylor comes to us from the Daniel Danforth Plant Science Center in St. Louis, Missouri. And anyone who's familiar with the Danforth Center understands that they have a very robust series of projects associated with cassava improvement, either uh, through a variety of different means. 
maybe we could start out by, could you tell me a little bit about some of the work that's being done at the Danforth Center to improve cassava for the African continent? Um, we, we have two major improvement projects for cassava at the, at the Danforth Center. Um, both of these are using biotechnology to enhance the crop. And the first of these, the, the first project is called VRCA, that is the virus-resistant cassava for Africa. And also then the second is called BioCassava Plus, and, and that one we are looking to enhance the nutritional content Which is of really cassava great storage because roots. cassava is such a staple worldwide. But uh, so little is really known about it, both uh, in popular press as well as, um, relatively speaking, um, as a crop. And why do you think that is? Well, cassava, because cassava is an orphan crop, um, really um, compared with uh, the major temperate crops like uh, like maize and wheat and then also rice. Um, these crops have had decades of intense research um, applied to them. While cassava really um, is, uh, the, the research effort on cassava has been much, much smaller than that, only a few percent of that effort, even though cassava is the third most important source of dietary calories in the tropics. So a lot of it is just the, um, the resources that have been available to us uh, to address the major problems of the crop. What, well, let's start out talking about virus resistance. And what is the Virka project? Well, in the Virka project, we are focusing on two major virus diseases that affect cassava in Africa. That is cassava brown streak disease and cassava mosaic disease. And we're using uh, biotechnology. We're using what's called RNAi technology to address specifically cassava brown streak disease at this time. And that's, I noticed that was been a lot of uh, focus of your publications over the last few years. And what, tell me more about the problem of brown streak virus and how much of an issue it is to cassava growers. Well, we're working with our partners in East Africa, and that is uh, our partners at the National Agricultural Research Institutes in Uganda and in Kenya to address cassava brown streak disease. And cassava brown streak disease has become, it was a relatively minor disease restricted to coastal Kenya, Mozambique, until about um, 15, 20 years ago, um, where it was then identified to have moved. It appeared in Uganda and it is now spread um, into Central Africa and is threatening to move into West Africa. West Africa being the largest cassava-producing uh, area in the world, uh, this disease is considered one of the most serious and significant threats to food security in the world. Why is the, uh, the brown streak virus so devastating, and what are some of the symptoms that a grower would see in the field? Cassava brown streak disease is um, it's a unlike cassava mosaic disease, which causes you know, significant malformation of the leaves. It's very easy to, for the farmers to spot. Cassava, uh, cassava brown sweet disease is more subtle on its impact on the shoot. You may see some um, mottling on the leaves. You may see some brown lesions on the stem. But the real impact of the disease is the damage that it does to the storage roots. So, in fact, the farmer may not really be aware uh, that his crop is infected until he or she digs up the roots. And then when you cut the roots open, they have um, large regions of, of um, 
of brown necrotic tissue within, within the storage routes and it makes these storage routes inedible. Uh, you can't feed them to your animals and you can't sell them in the market. So the crop is, uh, is lost. And then, as I said earlier, of course, that the, um, the your propagation material, the stake material that you would use to establish the next cycle is already infected. So the next year, the impact of the disease would be even worse. And it's uh, insect-vectored disease, as I understand? Yes, both Cassava brown streak disease and Cassava mosaic disease are, are transmitted by white flies from one plant to the next and one field to the next. But it's also transmitted, cassava being vegetatively propagated, so when you cut the stems and plant the stems to generate the next cropping cycle, the farmers also then transmit the disease in the planting material to the next, to the next crop. And, and if you look across um, wild variation in cassava, where you have substantial resources, you know, natural populations and things like this, is there um, sources of resistance to virus resistance in those natural populations that could facilitate just traditional breeding of the resistance? Well, as you know, to say that there's not really natural populations of cassava because cassava is all, uh, it's, a, it's, a prop, it's a cultivated crop, so it's a man-made crop. Um, there is good resistance to cassava mosaic disease, that is the, um, the Gemini virus disease, and the breeders have been very successful over the last 20 or 30 years of incorporating different resistance mechanisms into the cassava that is now growing in most of, um, of Africa. So there has been success against cassava mosaic disease. But cassava brown streak disease, as I said, is a, is a more recent threat and a very uh, rapidly expanding one. And to date, there, are, there is a number of major projects um, ongoing now to look for sources of inherent resistance in the cassava germplasm to cassava brown streak disease. But this is, is proving to be, um, to be a tough problem, and robust resistance within the natural germplasm has proved elusive so far. And so your approach has been to use um, the RNA silencing technology, or what, what, have, what have been the uh, transgenic approaches that have been tried? Yes, so for cassava branch weak disease, um, which is, um, there are two RNA epomoviruses which cause, um, cause that disease. One is called cassava branch weak virus, and the other is called Ugandan cassava branch weak virus. And we've been using, as, as you said, um, RNAi, Technology, um, and what we do in that situation is we we take gene sequences from the cult protein um, of the virus itself, and we integrate that into the cassava genome. And by doing that, the cassava um, the cassava will then express the small RNAs, um, which um, are coded against the cult protein of the incoming virus. And what this uh, does is it really what we're doing is we are pre-arming the plant um, to recognize the virus so as soon as it comes in the plant can activate its uh, defense mechanisms and defeat the virus before it can establish the disease and so just to give a little context to the listener this is uh, really is this parallel to what they did in papaya to rescue that crop in hawaii yes yes indeed it's very similar Technology to what was successful for papaya and what is now being also being approved for growing in plums and um, similar in potato and one other crop that I can't remember right now. 
Yeah, sorry. No, it seems like there's a lot of crops that are adopting the same uh, general approach because it seems to work really well and it's durable. It's, uh, the Hawaiian papaya has stood up very well. The, the situation with papaya in Hawaii is it has been very durable over time, but I think as, as many people are aware, it is the resistance to the papaya ring spot virus is very specific to the, to the strains of the virus in Hawaii. So then when you, um, when you actually, when you, if you were to move those plants into other regions of the world, um, they would not be resistant to the disease. So we've been aware of that um, for cassava brown streak disease. And we therefore, we fuel trialed our plants now um, under confined fuel trial conditions in Uganda and as far away as coastal Kenya. And our plants have, um, have shown to be very resistant to um, quite uh, a geographical um, uh, range and diversity of the, of the cassava brown streak viruses. So that's very encouraging for the technology. So while there's opportunities to use transgenics and biotechnology to engineer plants with given traits, how much work is done hand-in-hand with breeders to maintain other important traits? Well, within the Berkeley Project, we see um, delivery to two major, uh, in two major ways. One is once we've been through the regulatory process and have approval, um, we would deliver directly to the farmers so they could be growing the these materials, but the the second people, and we've already received interest um, from the breeders because they would also like to um, to get their hands on this material and then be able to cross that in and incorporate it into their breeding programs. So once again, we have to go through the regulatory process before doing that. But um, this is very attractive because once the breeders um, have this material, they will be able to integrate. The, the transgenically derived resistance into many different backgrounds uh, going forward into the future. So we don't see this as not a, um, you know, a, a biotech or breeding. Um, the materials that we are producing will become breeding uh, materials uh, for future uh, use by the, um, by the breeders. I guess the next real big question is, is that you know, it shows that it works. It's a really important crop. Where is... The, uh, where is the technology in the process towards either, I hate to say commercialization, but maybe deployment? Now, is this actually being tested somewhere in the field? Yes. I mean, we're with our, our, our partners in Uganda um, and Kenya. We're carrying out field trials now. We've done, um, just covering, I think we've done four or five completed field trials. And the, the plants have held up against the disease very effectively. Um, in fact, we, um, in our best performing lines, we cannot detect the virus at all. So the plants are uh, highly resistant to, to both of the, of the causal viruses. And so when you're looking at the transgenic technology for the brown streak virus, is that being matched with um, traditional breeding for the um, mosaic virus, or, or are there even transgenic approaches to clear the tr- mosaic virus? Our, our approach in the, in the worker project um, at this time is to take uh, cassava cultivars, which are pre- preferred by farmers, grown by farmers in Uganda and Kenya, um, and these are cultivars which have inherent resistance to cassava mosaic disease. And what we then do is we, we will then incorporate the resistance to cassava brown streak disease into those. So the farmer will, re- will receive um, 
um, once we go through all the testing and the regulatory processes, they will get um, their recognized known cultivars back in their hands, but resistant to both of these diseases. And that's really exciting because being adapted to regional cultivars, uh, how, how um, soon might that happen at this point? Well, we have just been through, as I said, um, several field trials in multiple locations, but we will have to, we're, um, we're going to have to do significantly more trials. We need to do um, further trait validation trials, yield trials, and then um, if they are successful, we go into um, regulatory tr- a sequence of regulatory trials. So this takes numerous years um, to complete. So we're still at the early stages. We have very good proof of concept, proof of performance in the field, but we have um, multiple cycles and, and several years to go yet before we can think about farmers growing these crops. And so are there any special considerations towards uh, growing the bioengineered crop? The Brown Street enhanced resistant uh, crops, they will not require um, any, any different inputs than, than what the farmers are doing right now. So you, we, you'll be able to intercrop them with existing, um, existing uh, crop rotations and it will not require any additional fertilizer or, or any other inputs. These will be, you could grow these plants in exactly the same way that you were growing your, your cassava at this time. And, and who are the major sponsors for this kind of work? We're, uh, uh, our project is funded and um, supported by um, USAID, uh, by um, the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation, and also by the Monsanto Fund. Okay, and, and all of these products that were destined for deployment, I see, believe I've read that these were to be uh, given away royalty-free, or what is the story on that? Yes, there will be no charge by the, uh, by, um, the technology developers to the end user. Well, who are the other partners who are actually participating on the ground in Africa in the Verka project? So our, our partners in the Verka project are uh, NACRI in Uganda, Kauro in Kenya, and also um, the CG Center, uh, IITA, uh, based in Nairobi. And how, much, how important is it to have actual African cooperators in terms of uh, trust towards the product and also in terms of the uh, understanding the deployment in, in the farmers themselves? Is, is that a big part of that? The African partners are, are the, the biggest single most important component of the, of the broker projects. And the broker project now we started in 2006 and the... Um, our African partners in Uganda and Kenya now actually lead large components of the project. So this is a project that is being driven um, largely by East Africa, East Africans for East Africa. That's so important, and I think that as we move on, we see the importance of incorporating the people most affected in the design of their strategies to um, remedy situations. I really do thank you for joining us. I think most of the uh, interest that we get in the podcast comes from these applications in the developing world, and people are very grateful for those and for folks like you who are doing this. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. And it's Dr. Nigel Taylor from the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, easy for you to say, um, with the recent innovations in virus resistance in cassava Uh, where Donald Danforth Center is playing a lead role at innovations in cassava for the people of Africa. And that wraps up 
the second episode of Cassava Intensivity, and uh, hopefully we'll revisit Cassava one more time in the near future. We have uh, another breeder and some other folks to talk about natural um, accessions and the germplasm for cassava, but uh, we'll follow up with that um, sometime in the future. Um, For now, that's the end of another Talking Biotech uh, podcast. Uh, My name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you so much for listening and really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.